Okay, well, we're looking forward to that in a couple of weeks. That'll be a good day. Plan to be here. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have been doing the Bible readings with us over these weeks and you're stuck in the Old Testament, flip a few more pages. We're in the New Testament now. And we will be in Matthew chapter 11. So go ahead and find that and you'll be ready to read along with me in just a moment. Uh, for those of you that did get stuck in the Old Testament and you, you kind of found it challenging to keep uh, making progress with the readings, you now have a new, fresh start. And so I want to encourage you, join us as we start in the New Testament. And by the time we finish uh, and get around Christmas time, the end of the year, you will have read the entire New Testament. And so uh, I, I want to call on you today to make a fresh commitment. If you kind of got lost somewhere in the Old Testament readings, freshly sign up, say, I'm going to do it, God being my helper, and uh, read with us across these weeks uh, the New Testament. Now, if you're newer and you don't know what we're talking about, inside the program you'll find a little paragraph that tells you all about our Read Through the Bible effort. And a lot of the resources are on our website, and the reading plan is on the website. It's chronological, and so it's a little bit different kind of reading than you might have done in times past. So jump in there and do it with us, all right? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, desperately need to be in your presence today. Thank you for being so good to honor us by being here now. We confess that there are many distractions. There are many things that would seize our thoughts right now. And we pray for your help that we might be able to have ears to hear and a mind that can comprehend and a heart that will respond to how you move and how you speak in our lives right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who can save a life? This was a question that I raised with you last week and we began to talk about the work of lifeguards and how lifeguards will jump in the water and get in the water with you and they will use their skill and their technique and their strength to retrieve you and save you out of perilous situations in the water. But who else has the power to save? Just think about that. Uh, you might consider a surgeon who has tremendous skill, capability, and you have a disease or a condition that has to go under a knife, and with his precision and care, he's able to operate in such a way that you live. Your life is saved. Uh, maybe you'd want to think about somebody that uh, serves in our police force or military who put themselves in harm's way to provide protection and deliverance and safety for you. We can go on with the list, but let me just ask you to, to think for a moment about philanthropists. And specifically, I have one in mind, and I can't wait to see your reaction to that. Because uh, Bill Gates typically has people fall into one of three categories when it comes to talking about him. There are some who don't know much about him and don't care. There are others that know more about him than they want to know, and they are convinced he's some kind of cruel, brutal monopolist that uh, stifles innovation. And then there is a, an emerging third group 
who is beginning to think that he's a saint because of the way that he has leveraged his wealth and his celebrity and the creation of his foundation, uh, he has literally been involved in saving thousands and millions of lives, especially of children around this world. Uh, some time ago when uh, Bill and Melinda Gates decided that they were going to put the vast amount of their wealth into a foundation and try to make some kind of positive difference in this world, they went on an investigative journey. They began to look at all kinds of things in terms of where should they invest their time and their, and their wealth. And what they finally landed on uh, was the matter of uh, inoculations, especially for children in third world or emerging countries uh, with the, the dozens of preventable diseases that can be prevented, but they're not because they don't have the vaccines. And because of his wealth, because of his celebrity, because of his um, ingenuity in just being able to get things done, I mean, whatever you think about uh, the whole Microsoft empire, he got something done there. And he brought that into this foundation and into this difference-making mode uh, so that he's brought to the table national governmental leaders, uh, pharmaceutical companies, NGOs, a number of other foundations and investors. And in that synergistic effort, they've made these kinds of differences just in recent times. I'm just talking about in recent months and recent years. For example, the hepatitis B that uh, impacts our liver and, and liver failure, 3.4 million lives have been saved by their getting that kind of vaccine out into these kinds of environments. Measles, which we don't think much about here because we are so effective in being able to address it, it's deadly around the globe, uh, especially with those that don't get the vaccine. 1.2 million lives saved since these efforts have been undertaken. The Hib bacteria, which can lead to meningitis and death, 560,000 lives saved. Whooping cough, same thing, 470,000 lives saved. Yellow fever, 140,000 lives saved. Polio, 30,000 lives saved. And the interesting thing about polio, uh, and I have a high interest in that because it's also been a key part of a service club that I've been involved in, is that it's not just an, an, an effort to vaccinate and protect children. It's an effort to eradicate. So to this point in history, only one disease has been eradicated, and that was smallpox. Polio is so close. It's this close to being eradicated. And since Gates came to the game of trying to eradicate polio, we're just almost there. Whatever you think about him, you have to say, that's remarkable. That's making a difference. That's saving lives. Bringing power to bear to save lives. But let me hasten to also point out, everything that we've just been discussing has to do with life here and now. What about the hereafter? What about the life that is to come? And you go, well, I don't know. It could be science fiction. You know, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced about an afterlife. Well, another great uh, dividing mark for our culture. Those that believe in an afterlife, those that don't believe in an afterlife. 
And here's the fact of the matter. It tends to fall into these kind of categories. Those that believe in an afterlife have some kind of faith, whether it's a Christian faith or another kind of faith. Those that don't believe in an afterlife typically have no faith and, and have little value for faith. So let me just uh, point out the obvious that to do so is making a bet with your life. Okay? And if there is no afterlife, if there is no thing as a higher power, a supreme being, a God, and so on like that, and you bet that way, and life is over, and you were right, congratulations. But if you bet that way, and there is a God who had a plan, who invited you to do life with Him, and you didn't, friends, that's going to be a, a losing, losing day. And so, make no mistake... It is the bet of life. Is there a God or is there not? And if there is, how does one rightly relate to that God? How does one know that God? How does one get saved from lostness or separation or disconnect from God to a connect, to a relationship, to an eternal kind of life with Him? Well, according to our faith and according to what the Bible has to say, that narrative unpacks like this. God is in the beginning and He creates everything. Now, when you start talking about that, there's all kinds of implications to that. For one, the implication is that human beings, whatever you want to say about evolutionary process, human beings have a unique stamp upon their lives the Bible claims it's the very image of God. And so you see something, you learn something of God when you look at humanity because He's put His imprint, He's put His stamp on us. We are in His image, which means there's an intrinsic value, an intrinsic worth that He has placed in us. So He creates, and then out of that creation where He's Lord, He's in charge, He says life will happen this way, life will be according to my purposes and my plans, my will, my ways, uh, at a certain point man rebelled. And uh, there was a coup, there was a takeover, where mankind basically said, um, God, You are great, You are awesome, You're, you're, you're something else, but I want to run my own life. I, I want to make my own lordship-type moves in my life. And so, in response to man's rebellion, God judged. Because of the holiness of his character and uh, not being able to be violated in that kind of way, he judged that rebellion and condemned mankind because, all of mankind, because of mankind's rebellion against him. But God also, in his character, is full of mercy full of grace, and he began to extend mercy and grace toward those of us, all of us, who are judged and condemned. And to make sure that we could get it, to make sure that we began to comprehend how great this mercy is, how great this grace is, this saving work of his, he incarnated himself. He took flesh upon himself and he became one of us and he began to do life with us. And we had this supreme example of what it means to be human. And what it means to be a man or a woman in this world. Who knows God and does life with God. 
And in that incarnated life, He paid the penalty for rebellion and for sin. And thus we have the horrors of the cross. And thus we have the good news. There is no good news without bad news. And so for those that would like, can you just talk about the positive? Can you just talk about the things that will give us a little lift? And all? I'd love to do that. But you have to have it in context. And the context is there's bad news. We're busted, broken, and condemned. Good news. He has mercy and grace toward that. He comes near to us so that we can get near to Him. And He pays the penalty and the price for our sin. And then we are left with a response to that. Will you repent? Stop being your own Lord. Stop being your own boss. And turn to Him. Turn to His Lordship. Surrender to Him. Believe and do life with Him. So that's the narrative. Now, how does man begin to believe? That's where we're going to uh, get into the Gospel of Matthew today. And when God incarnated Himself and became present with us, he began to lay a, a way, a means for us to believe. And the first thing that he did was he began to display his power. He began to demonstrate his power. And this is some of the most fun reading in all of the Bible. And so this is why I want you to commit. Read the New Testament with us because these readings are just going to rock you. I mean, they, they're just going to inspire you at a deep place. And so when we begin to see how he interacted with humans and this display of his power, you'll see... He heals a leper. You'll see he heals a centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And for those of you that are wondering, why would you do that? Um, she was near and dear to his heart. He healed many, we're told in verse 16 of chapter 8, casting out demons. It was too, too uh, numerous to give some names and some numbers at that point. It was just many. And then he calmed the storm. As things got real crazy, he spoke to a storm and calmed it. Who does that? We're also told that he delivered two demon-possessed men, and then he healed a paralytic, and in so doing, forgave the sins of this crippled guy. Who gets to forgive sin except God? And then he heals a ruler's daughter, and he heals a hemorrhaging woman, and he heals two blind men. And that's just in about a chapter and a half. You get to keep on reading this. And after a while, you're like, oh, okay, so why do we know all this? Why was this recorded? So that you can see the display of Jesus' power. He's the one that has power to save. You see, we just moved into a whole new realm. As devastating, as deadly as all the diseases of this planet are, that many are being addressed with a number of different vaccines, there is a disease that there is no vaccine for that is deadly and will end your life not only in the here and now, but forever, and that's called sin. And there's only, according to the Bible and the life of Christ, there's only one cure for that deadly disease, that terminal disease, and that's Jesus. Because somebody pays for your sin. Somebody pays 
for my sin. And the good news is, Jesus will pay for it if you'll believe Him. The bad news is, if you don't believe Him, you stand condemned in it, and there's nothing you can do to pay for it. You don't have, I don't have, we don't have the power to save ourselves from our sin. But Jesus does. And so He, he incarnates Himself. He's with us. He's close to us so that we can get close to Him and see power, 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 power. Now, in that display... Still, it sometimes stirs questions. Do you ever have questions about Christ, about His saving work, about His purposes and His plan and His will? Why does it happen this way? you ever had that kind of question? You're not alone. One of those who was of the greatest faith-filled men of God had one of those questions. John the Baptizer. And of course, John had led the way for Jesus' ministry to be launched. And John was out in the wilderness preaching, calling for people to repent, calling for people to go ahead and give up being the Lord of their own life and get ready to, to trust the Lordship of Christ. He'd already been all about that. Then he gets arrested. Then he's in this dungeon kind of prison thing. He's going to be decapitated. He's going to lose his head over this whole thing. And on one day... And he's hearing these stories about Jesus. Lepers are healed, blind are seeing, deaf are hearing, something like that. He calls a couple of his friends over to like the jail bars. And he's talking to them through the jail bars. And he's like, go find Jesus. And ask him, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Savior? Are you really the one who has power to save? Or should we look for someone else? Now, how in the world can you ask that question if you're John the Baptizer? If you're the one that's already seen all these miracles and heard about all these miracles, you've had the power of God upon your life in the ways that John's had the power of God upon his life. How do you get to a point where you ask such questions? Friends, it's because the way Jesus is conducting himself is so outside of John's preconceived ideas, he feels like he's losing his mind. I didn't think the Messiah was going to act this way. What is this? That's where we pick up the story in chapter 11. So look with me in Matthew 11. Uh, well, I'll just back it up to verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Now, notice Jesus' answer. Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John... Now, notice the answer. He doesn't say, go and tell John, what are you, an idiot? How could you ask such a question? Where's your faith? What's the matter with you? Come on, get with the program. You're the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God. You're the one that's been announcing my arrival. He, he does not do any of that, but notice what he says. Jesus answered and said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. 
the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. <laughs> he basically said, just go and tell John what he already knows. Go and tell him what he already has seen and witnessed for himself. Those are the indicators that I have the power to save, that I am the Christ, that I am the long-awaited Savior. Friends, that's a call for faith. Now, let me just pause here for a little bit and unpack some of this, because we all bring our own set of preconceived ideas. If I was Jesus, salvation would happen like this. If I was the Lord, I would conduct the purposes of God like this. So we all bring our own sense of preconceived notions. Let me just unpack this uh, briefly from the, the larger weight of Scripture. Uh, in the first place, salvation is not deliverance from all pain. And so, if you have been thinking about whether or not you should be a Christ follower and you're looking around at others who are Christ followers, and they still have a pretty good level of pain in their life. Man, life's still challenging for them. I don't understand why it's still so hard for them. They're talking about how good Jesus is, but Jesus ain't doing much for them as far as I can tell. It's because salvation never promised that you'd never have any more pain. Salvation promised that there would be a purpose to the pain. That there would be a presence of God with you in the pain that there would be something redemptive that happens out of the pain. What a huge, huge thing. Salvation is not escape from oppression or injustice. You see, the people that began to follow Jesus in Jesus' day still had Roman oppression. Still had dictatorial-type government pushing them around, telling them what to do, overtaxing them, etc. Still had the pharisaical religious leaders making their lives miserable. They still had all this junk in life. Salvation did not give them an escape card from all of that. And salvation was not a ticket to prosperity. Now friends, one of the most devious things that are happening in America around Christian faith is this thing that I keep bringing up to you called prosperity theology. Where if you follow Jesus, He is going to bless you in such a way that you'll have the dream job, you'll have the dream bank account, you'll have the dream spouse, you'll have the dream kids, and so on and so on and so on. Friends, it just ain't so. Does He make a positive impact upon your life in that kind of way when He saves you? Yes, He makes a positive difference. Yes, there's a transforming thing that happens for you and, and will happen for a lot of people that are around you. But it is not a carte blanche guarantee. No more pain. No more problems. No more uh, press, pressure and stresses in life. Uh, no more setbacks. That's just crazy. And that's a false gospel. And there's just been another newly released book that will probably be another bestseller along these lines. Some of you may have already gotten it. And I don't mean this to be any way uh, condescending or harsh toward you. I just you know, want to say, you've got to look at the rest of the New Testament. There's too many people that are having their lives 
uh, martyred and going through all kinds of horrific sufferings for the cause of Christ for you to say prosperity theology is true. Okay, it's enough on that. So, what is salvation? Okay, it's not, not, not that. But what is it? Well, for one, it is a liberty. It is a freeing that happens to your life, especially from the penalty of sin. Okay? And that's the part that most of us are aware of. If Jesus takes our penalty for sin, and that's what the cross was all about, then that means I don't pay the penalty for that. I've been forgiven. My slate has been wiped clean. And whenever the day of accountability and judgment day in this life is over, I get to stand before Him and I get to be welcomed as a son or welcomed as a daughter. And He will have paid the price and the penalty. It also makes me free from the punishment of sin. Not just the penalty, but the punishment. The Bible talks about there being levels of punishment to sin. That there are levels of retribution. And Jesus will make statements like this. Oh, it's going to be way worse for this guy than for this guy in the time of judgment because he hindered children from coming to me. And there's a lot of statements like that. And we are not only free from the penalty of sin, we get to be forgiven, we're free from the punishment of sin. Salvation is liberty, and salvation is life. You say, what's life? I, I kind of feel like I already have it. You know, I'm kind of like breathing and I've got all the senses happening. I can feel and smell and taste and see and hear and all that kind of stuff. There's another whole level of life. And the Bible describes it this way in John 17, 3, that it is knowing God. That's life. And the implication of that is everything else is like existence. It's like just kind of functioning, bodily functions and just kind of getting along in this world. But life is knowing Him. And I don't have time to unpack the word knowing uh, in today's talk, but it's way more than a knowledge thing. See, when the Bible talks in Genesis that Adam knew Eve and then they began to have children, it's a word filled with intimacy and life engagement and connection and love and purpose and meaning and so on. Salvation is liberty. It's life. And it's light. You see, the Bible says this world's dark. Because of sin and rebellion, a darkness has come on this, this world and on our lives until you are saved. And then there's a light that's turned on for you. And you begin to see this world differently. It changes your worldview. You have a different set of eyes so that you and someone else are looking at the same circumstance and they see it totally from a worldly perspective and you see it more from a perspective of God and eternity and eternal purposes and so on like that. And it brings light for you to be able to see things with respect to the world to come. It all that changes your priorities. changes your values. Because you understand how temporal this time is. This here and now. The Bible says it's like a mist. It's like a vapor. It's here and it's gone. But all of eternity waits on the other side of this life. 
So, when we talk about how could John the baptizer say, are you really one? See, outside of his preconceived notions, and we struggle with that same kind of thing. But notice also in the third place in chapter 11, Jesus cautions those who get offended when he operates outside of their preconceived ideas. Look at verse 6. I can keep my page. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, people try to take the offense out of Jesus. Whenever there's something that Jesus is conducting in a certain way and it doesn't make sense to us and we don't like that, you know, then we begin to try to make excuses for him like he needs us to make excuses for him. And we began to bring some bad theology to things. Well, he uh, just didn't, you know, bring himself to bear on that or that's outside of what he'll give attention. You know, and we bring all this silly nonsense kind of stuff. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus does hard, complex, painful, outside of our expectation kinds of things all the time. And he basically says, I get to do that. I'm Lord. And you are blessed when that doesn't offend you. When you trust me, that I know better, that I'm going to do better, that my way is the wise way, you're blessed. And he gives caution to those who will be offended. And then as we move on down to verse 20, he's also going to warn those who have seen him do so much. Look at verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Now, when he gets baptized by John and he kind of launches out into this ministry, one of the first things he does is he goes to North Galilee, to the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. And there in various cities, he does all those mighty works that we just got through reading about. Well, in light of that, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment. There's one of those levels of retribution that will happen in judgment. I will tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, what does all that mean? Let me say this real quickly. For reasons that Jesus knows and chooses, he makes himself more manifest and more known in some places than he does in others. If that offends you, Jesus says you'll be blessed if it doesn't offend you. If you think he ought to just do the same for everybody everywhere all the time, he doesn't. 
And he says, where I make myself really clearly known and I manifest myself in certain ways, I hold a higher standard of expectation there. Now, you just got through reading all the Old Testament, right? You remember Tyre and Sidon? They were extremely wicked cities. You remember Sodom? Extremely wicked city. Jesus basically says to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, and to Capernaum, if I had done for those cities what I did in your city, they would have repented and come to me. So you need to know, I am going to hold you accountable for all that I've been showing you of myself. All these mighty works, all these miracles, all these healings, all these deliverances, and so on like that. If that doesn't bring you to faith, nothing will. And you'll have accountability for all that. So let me just say it to you this way, friends. The United States of America has been a Bethsaida or a Capernaum. Jesus has showed up in this country remarkably noteworthy. The kind of ways that He has blessed and, and, and worked in our midst are reason enough for people to be brought to faith. And to not respond in that kind of way will have a high level of accountability to it. Let me finish with this, because you're needing a more positive, uplifting word, and here we have it. So in uh, chapter 11, on down to verse 28, here's how Jesus wraps up this whole discourse. He gives cautions. He gives warnings. You've really got to pay attention to this. In verse 28, So, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, what's the context for that? This isn't, I know you're really putting in a hard day's work at, at the job, so come to me and I'm going to give you that lazy boy kind of experience. You'll be able to kick back and life's just going to be better. That's not, that's not the context here. The context is for the person that has been laboring over the saving of their life, uh, laboring over whether they can make it well between themselves and a holy God, laboring over all of the religious issues. Of, he goes, if that's who you are, if you're laboring in that, if you're weary of all that kind of religious muck and mire, come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your soul in me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, what do you do with what we've been talking about? Let me finish with this brief story. Some of you know my good friend Russ Newman, who um, passed away a couple of years ago now. But I met Russ back in the early 90s, and we were uh, serving together in a service club. And I was in my 30s, he was in his 60s. So uh, I really considered a God thing that we kind of developed a friendship that we did uh, because there was a lot of differences between us. And uh, not a few times, Russ and I would uh, get together somewhere for a hamburger. He would always say it this way, hey, 
about time for us to go get a hamburger. What do you think? So we'd go get a hamburger. And we would talk about our service club, and we'd be talking about projects that we're doing in the community to make a difference, and we would talk about a little politics, and we'd talk about the law a little bit, because he was a lawyer, and we'd talk about faith, because I was a person of faith. And on three separate occasions, I spoke with Russ very plainly, because I loved the guy, and I was concerned, and I cared about his soul. And on three separate occasions, I spoke to him very plainly and basically just shared the gospel with him, things that we've been talking about today. And Russ had had a little religious background. His mother was a godly woman, and she'd had some influence on him, but he had wandered way far from all of that kind of stuff. And uh, every time I would talk about Jesus and how uh, we are designed to live life with Jesus and by the power of Jesus, he just nodded his head. I said, now, you understand what we're talking about? Yeah, I sure do. Well, what do you think about that? Hey, I agree with you. I think you're exactly right. And so I would say to Russ, well, then Russ, why wouldn't you make a commitment of your life to follow Jesus and be a Christian? And on two of those occasions, he said the same thing to me. He said, well, Scott, I've got too much respect for Jesus to do that. And I went, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, I know that if I became a Christ follower, and I believe all of it. I, I believe you know, everything that you've said about the New Testament and the Gospel and about Jesus and He has the power to save and so on. I believe it all. But I know that if I give my life to that, if I surrender to that, uh, Jesus is going to look for some change in my life. I'm like, yeah? And honestly, he said, I, I still like to tell a dirty joke. I'm like, yeah? And I still like to, you know, go do a few party things. I'm sure, I'm just sure Jesus would frown on. And I'm like, yeah? And I'm just not quite ready. Well, on those first two occasions, I have to tell you, I left those luncheons heartbroken. Because statistically, not even talking about how does God work in somebody's life, but statistically, somebody that's 60 and, and older, they hardly ever come to faith. They've become so set in their ways, their heart has been so positioned to be their own Lord, they almost never come to faith. So on two of those occasions, that's how it all finished. And it just, just broke my heart. Third occasion, we were talking along the same lines. And he says, Scotty, my boy, <laughs> I'm ready to do that. He surrendered his life to Christ. He made the decision for Jesus to be Lord in his life. He made that public with an act of baptism here. And for those of you that got to know him in the years that followed, uh, man, he loved Jesus. Loved the, the church of Jesus. Served. Studied the Bible. Loved the scriptures. I mean, when we had his memorial service in this room, there were people from all walks of life out of his history that were celebrating. Some of you remember a couple of them. <laughs> another story for another time. <laughs> 
But there was testimony after testimony after testimony of how much Russ meant to them and, and for those that knew him as a man of faith, of what his faith meant to them. Here's what Russ said to me in his last days before he died. Scott, you just have to keep telling people. You have to keep telling people. My biggest regret, I got a lot of regrets. My biggest regret is how long I took before I followed Jesus. How long I took before I began to just take the Word of God into my life. How long I took before I allowed Him to use my life to make a difference in this world. That is my biggest regret out of all of them that I took so long to make that decision. He said, just keep telling people that. So I'm telling you that. What will you do today? Will you surrender to the Lordship of Christ? Russ presumed on the grace of God that he would have another time, another day to make that decision. Friends, that's a dangerous presumption. In this kind of gathering, in this context, for this moment, you have to know this is an appointment with God. He has worked in such a way that we would be gathered at this time to consider this matter. Will you come and surrender? Will you publicly identify with Him? That you'll talk about Christ. That you'll let people know the priority that He is to you. That you'll glorify Him and exalt Him. And of course, one of those ways is to, to also be baptized. We take that kind of step. We share the gospel promise. We're not talking about trying to force anybody to do anything. We're not talking about cramming religion down people's throat. We're talking about some good news. Listen, I'm always pleased to talk about Jesus. Nothing has meant more to me and made more difference in my life than Jesus. I'm just glad to talk about Him. You don't want to talk about it? I won't talk about it. If you do, I will. Will you? Is that where you are with Him, that you share about all the promise that's in the Gospel? So here's what's going to happen over these next few minutes, friends. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm praying God's blessing upon you to be able to turn your heart fully to Him. And then we're just going to have just kind of a simple little season of prayer. Just kind of personal reflection time. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to try to make you do anything. Just take a couple of minutes. Do you ever get to just take a couple of minutes and reflect? Take a couple of minutes and reflect and think about all these things. But meanwhile, if you feel like, I wish somebody could pray for me about this, the back of the room, we'll have uh, three praying people back there that you can trust. It'll all be confidential. And just during this little reflect, reflection time, if you want to go back and just have a moment of prayer, let them pray over you, and then return to your seat, you can do that. So that's what this next few minutes will be all about. Let me pray for you. So, Lord, I'm just so moved. I'm so stirred right now with how much you love us. Seven billion people on the planet, so many things going on at one time, and yet you purpose to meet with us in this gathering, to stir our hearts, to inspire our thoughts, to draw us to yourself. So, thank you. How can we say thanks for that? I especially want to pray for the friend listening right now 
that's been struggling about whether to surrender to your Lordship. So, Father, by the touch, by the power of your Spirit, will you just enable, empower them to say an eternal yes to you. In Jesus' name.